Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. The final meeting of the year for the Farnham U3A World History Group comprises of four short talks from any period in history. In our second short talk, Ian Wallace tells us about the composer Handel's life in London. Now, another musician, George, or should I say Georg Friedrich Handel, by the way, no statistics in this talk at all. The title of my talk really is Handel in England. Now, Handel, Georg Handel, as we have already heard, his father was not a musician. In fact, they were not a musical family at all. His father was actually a barber surgeon, which is a, a pretty drastic and ruthless profession, as I should know. Anyhow, how did he come to be in London? We've heard the arrival of the Queen of Sheba, and we probably all know the Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, the water music, and the coronation anthems that have been used in all coronation in recent years. So how did he become so famous and, as a German, coming to be in London at the centre of musical life? It was Jonathan Swift, no less, who, as we know, lived very near Moore Park, who was visited by Handel, and he said, Oh, a German, a genius, prodigy, pray admit him. So even in circles of London at the time, Handel became something of a star. He was born in Halle in Germany in 1685, the same year as Bach. So that's an interesting one on their anniversary. And he showed very early promise as a pianist, organist, and he came to the notice, luckily, of the Duke of Saxe-Wersenfels in Saxony, who supported him financially with lessons and through university of the University of Halle. From there, he had a step up to Hamburg, which was a great, quite a center of musical life, where he learned the skills of conducting and of how to do conducting opera and concerts. By 1706, when he was 21, he had the good fortune to be able to travel to Italy, which at the time was the magnet of music in Europe. Florence, Rome, Naples, and of course Venice. That was the big place. And he fell in love with opera, as one does. Of course, when you're in Italy, you have to. He was thrilled to meet tutors like Scarlatti, Vivaldi, Corelli. And by the time he was 24, he had composed his first opera called Agrippina, which was premiered in Venice. So that was a pretty good start. He also fell in with the opera crowd, by which I mean all the, the divas, the tenors, the castrati, and all the useful patrons of the arts. Now, one of those patrons was called Baron Kielmanseg, who was a diplomat from Hanover. And the other one, was very important, was Charles Montague, the Duke of Manchester, uh, who invited him to London. Somehow, he wangled a leave of absence from the Elector of Hanover 
where he had been appointed as a musical director for the cathedral there, somehow he managed to wangle leave of absence to go to London in 1710. And of course, the son of the Elector of Hanover was soon to become George I. So that was rather fortunate. London was in a rapid phase of development after the Great Fire of London. And St. Paul's Cathedral was being completed, many city churches, concert halls, theatres. So London was absolutely buzzing at the time. In no time at all, the composer was being summoned by Queen Anne. And the first commission he had, really, was to perform and compose a birthday cantata for the court. Definitely he was on the up. Other patrons also wanted Handel to perform for them, and one of them was the Duke of Chandos, James Bridges, for whom he wrote anthems for his chapel. Then came another organization, which was called very grandly the Royal Academy for Opera at the Haymarket Theatre. This was a new theatre in Haymarket. Haymarket, by the way, was where all the traders brought their wagons full of hay. It really was not a wonderful place for a, for a theatre, but they, once you cleared the hay, it was all right. Then when their state's first opera, which he composed, was called Rinaldo, all about crusaders liberating Jerusalem. And it was very, very popular. All the cognoscenti of London went to it, including the royal family. They were all in Italian. That you had to buy a book of translation as you went in. Instead of your program, you had to buy this book. It was all very well. Queen Anne dies in 1714, and by a curious chance, these dynastic Stuart marriages, his previous employer, as I mentioned, George Ludwig of Hanover, became George I of England. So in 1717, the new king gave a party on the River Thames, which went in barges from Whitehall to Chelsea. Handel's water music. Imagine that sounding on the Thames in barges with 50 musicians. It was a terrific performance. And as a result of this, he was granted a royal pension of 200 pounds per annum. Now, 200 pounds in those days was, well, fantastic. So by this time, you could say that Handel had really arrived. And he was also involved in teaching music to the children of the, of the royal household. They adored him. So there must have been something very special about Handel and how he dealt with children. So that was quite an interesting thing. So by this time, he had rented a house in 25 Brook Street, near Hanover Square, which became his workshop, his rehearsal rooms, his music copying rooms for libretti, and generally a hub of activity. If anybody has had the chance of going to the Handel House, it is really a fascinating place to go to. He had a librettist, fortunately, to help him, Nicholas Heim. Now, the Royal Academy got underway, and a series of opera seasons went by, with the opera company engaging the best singers from Europe, mainly from Italy. The stars, of course, that he had already met when he was in Venice and Florence and other places. So he attracted them to London for the first time. That was really an outstanding achievement. Big voices, big personalities, as you can imagine. Let's go to one of those people. 
Francesco Senesino. He was a karate tenor, and he had a wonderful voice, a wonderful actor. He was paid the princely sum of a thousand guineas per season. That's what London was prepared to pay. You can multiply that, those of you who are statisticians. So he was a great talent, and Hanley got him on board. And then there was another lady called Faustina Bordoni, also a famous operatic singer, and she put Handel's operas on the map with uh, her wonderful singing. There was a, another singer he also engaged called Francesca Cuzzoni. Now, she was a very high-spirited, wonderful scholaratura soprano. She became rather a rival to the other lady, Faustina. Handel had quite a problem, actually, trying to keep them in order. These two pranas were constantly jockeying for position, wanting more arias to be composed for them, which drove Handel to distraction at times. He had a possibly a little bit of a short fuse. One day, Kutsoni refused to sing an aria because she wanted to be a little bit more coloratura than he wanted himself. And this was the opera called Artoni. Madame, he said, you are a she-devil, but I would have you know that I am Beelzebub, chief of the devils. With that, he took her by the waist and swore that he would fling her out of the window if she said another word. <laughs> she backed down. There was a brilliant collaboration with outstanding performances, season after season, well into the 1720s. I think in all, something like 25 operas in the ensuing years. They were mostly on classical themes, like Aces and Galatea, Alcestis, Flavio, Giulio, Cesari. They came pouring out at the opera house in Haymarket. This is a slightly poor reproduction of the cartoon by William Hogarth, the painter, of all people coming to the Royal Academy Theatre, wheeling in you might say, shed loads of money. <laughs> this was the impression gained that the opera company was doing extremely well at this time. However, sadly, all good things come to an end at times, and it all fell apart with rivalries between all these operatic stars and factions amongst the patrons. And if that wasn't enough, there came the South Sea bubble when everybody lost their money. So all the financial backing was gone. Now, George I died in 1727, and George II came to the throne. So who should be asked to anthems for the coronation? Well, you've guessed, Handel. So we have, for example, Zadok the priest, and the prophet anointed Solomon king, and King shall rejoice, these are coronation anthems. This was a high point in Handel's life. He mixed in wonderful company in the London artistic and literary circles with, as I say, Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope, William Hogarth, and a lot of other people. They all got on extremely well. In 1733, he receives an honorary doctorate of music at Oxford. So that was a sort of high accolade. However, gradually, audiences lost interest in Italian opera for the failure to make money for his backers. It was said it was because of Handel's imperious and extravagant will 
Handel would say, I was only trying to keep up the standards. At the age of 52, he suffered a stroke, a palsy, affecting his right hand, which was really a disaster for a musician. Well, in those days, we didn't go to Frimley Park. You took the waters. And so he went off to Aix-la-Chapelle, take the waters, as one did, and he made a very good recovery. So probably it was perhaps a, what we would call nowadays a TIA. And he got a good recovery, and he was able to play and compose again. And at this point, he started a collaboration with a gentleman called Charles Jennings. He was fed up with this Italian opera. He wanted music in English, quite right, you might say. And so he wanted an oratorio using the language of the English King James Bible. Would Handel do it? And so was born the Messiah, and a dramatic interpretation of Christ's birth and ministry. The first performance was to be in a new concert hall in Dublin, using singers from St. Patrick's Cathedral, where, as it so happened, Jonathan Swift was dean. It was a huge success. Choirs the world over have sung the Messiah, and it's never been out of the repertoire. It is said that when the Hallelujah Chorus was first performed in London, George II stood up, and therefore everybody in the, the hall had to stand up too. There followed many performances of charities in subsequent years, notably the Thomas Coram's Foundling Hospital, in which William Hogarth was involved. Also, Handel gave charity concerts for an organization called the Decayed Musicians Benevolent Fund. Now we would call it the Musicians Benevolent Society. In 1751, the coach on which Handel was traveling overturned and he was quite badly injured, losing the sight in one eye, yet he never gave up playing and composing till his death in 1759 at the age of 64. What was he like? Charles Burney, who was a, a musician at the time, described his character like this. His general look was heavy and grave, but when he smiled, it was like the sun bursting out of a black cloud, beaming with wit and humor. Did he marry? No. Did he have girlfriends? Was he gay? Well, he was fond of two singers, particularly. One was a lady called Anastasia Robinson, a soprano, and she was very loyal to him. The other was a lady called Susanna Sibber, the wife of the actor-manager Collie Sibber. They were very, very fond of him. But no, he didn't marry. He was too busy. Oratorios became popular from Bach onwards. Oratorios became the thing. And he wrote libretti for Samson and Judas Maccabeus. Can I give you now, instead of Georg Friedrich Handel, George Frederick Handel. Citizen of London, his statue is in Westminster Abbey. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio.
This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Thank you for listening to this talk 